children can go on to junior church in the south wing and the younger ones down to toddle time downstairs. We're continuing in our series this morning, Church 101, getting back to the basics of church. The church gathering that we see together here is the get-together of Jesus' family. We've been focusing on the church as family and how we live that out together. The church's family business, as it were, is to magnify God, love one another, and witness to the world around us. The church magnifies God as we worship Him together, doing family devotions together, expressing our devotion to God together. Two things we do together, but not every time we gather, are the ordinances of Jesus, the family meal, that is the Lord's Supper, and family birthday parties, baptisms. Last week, Pastor Ken helped us look at the way that the church family shares life together, thinking about the biblical teaching about fellowship and stewardship, the sharing of our lives, the sharing of our time, the sharing of our resources as a family. Today, we're going to talk about church membership, membership in the family. And the main message goes like this. Sinners are welcomed into the family of God when they believe in Jesus And as members of the heavenly church, each one should join a local church. So we're going to be talking about church membership in that regard, and we begin with this idea of joining the heavenly church. Now, you might be more used to thinking in terms of the universal church, or the invisible church, or the global church, but I think the term heavenly church is more precise biblically, and I'll show you why that is and why that's important to remember. We start in the book of Acts, as we have done so often in this series, and we see a few interesting phrases as we read through the book of Acts when people begin to believe in Jesus. One of those phrases is that people are added to the Lord, added to the Lord. Acts 5.14, for example, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So notice the passive voice there. They are added to the Lord by the Lord. And that is speaking of joining the heavenly church. The moment that a sinner begins to trust in Jesus, there's something, there's a a multitude of things that happen to you. And one of those things is that you are added to the Lord. And that is to say you are connected to him. The Apostle Paul will use the language of union with Christ, that we are in Him, that we are connected to Him vitally, organically, and permanently. Luke, as he summarizes these uh, conversions that happen in the book of Acts, will use the phrase, added to the Lord. Acts 11 is similar. Acts 11.24. This is after the church in Jerusalem has been scattered throughout the region and they've begun to preach the gospel to Gentiles outside all around uh, the world there. And Luke summarizes, a great many people were added to the Lord. And if you want to know exactly what does that mean, back up just a few verses in Acts 11 to verse 21, and we read, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed 
turned to the Lord. And so what's going on there is that people are believing the gospel. They're trusting in Jesus. They're making the singular turn, turning away from sin and to Jesus. Repentance and faith, the only appropriate response to the gospel, the only saving response to the gospel is to turn away from sin and to Jesus, a singular turning, what we often call conversion. And that's what's happening. And when that happens, God is adding people to the Lord Jesus. He's connecting us in a vital, organic, permanent, unbreakable union with him. A second phrase that we need to think about or reality that we need to think about is being assembled and seated in heaven. Assembled and seated in heaven. We start with the seated piece in Ephesians 2.6 as the Apostle Paul describes what God does to us when he saves us. The climax of that act is in verse 6 of Ephesians 2. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him In the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Notice the past tense verbs. This is something that happened to you the moment you began to trust in Jesus. It's not something you're looking forward to happening later on. It is something that happened to you the moment you began to trust in Jesus. You were seated. That doesn't mean a seat was reserved for you in heaven. That means you were taken and put in a chair. (laughs) You spiritually, your soul, your spirit was moved. It was taken from one place to another. Now, we don't feel that. We don't experience that. We don't see that reality in our day-to-day basis. But it's true. It's more true and more real than the fact that you're sitting in these blue chairs in this room or out in the auditorium or if you're watching at home, sitting on comfortable couches or laying in bed. More true and more real than what you feel with your body in these chairs is the fact that if you're trusting in Jesus, you are seated in heaven. You're sitting there connected to Jesus in him and with him. And you will be that way forever. In one sense, we don't, when we die, we don't die and go to be with Jesus. In one sense, we simply stop being here. On the planet. Our souls are already united to Jesus in heaven. We're there right now. And when we die, this body goes in the ground and we begin to experience the reality that has been true and real for us ever since we began to trust in Jesus. That's what happened to you the moment you began to trust Him. So we're seated in heaven. We're also assembled in heaven. This is very important from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come. Note again the past tense. This happened to you. You've already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. In verse 23, you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That word assembly is translating the Greek word ekklesia, the church. You have come to the church of the firstborn sons enrolled in heaven. You came there. You have already arrived in heaven. 
This is true of you and has been true of you since the moment you trusted in Jesus. You have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, if you were to count these out, the things that the author says we've come to in verses 22 to 24, there are seven. And right smack dab in the middle is you have come to God, the judge of all. And that doesn't scare us. That doesn't scare us that we come to God as judge because we've come to him as judge and we've received the judge's verdict. And that verdict was righteous. We've received that verdict. We've been justified by our faith the moment we began to trust in Jesus. And so we've already come to receive the verdict that is unappealable, unoverturnable. It cannot be overturned or changed. You are righteous now and forevermore. And that happened to you the moment you began to trust in Jesus. You have come to God, the judge of all. You've also come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've joined up with all of the righteous people from the Old Testament period and on up until now who have already died and gone to be there. I even said it the other way. The reality of the righteous souls who are fellowshipping with Jesus there, we're already among them in one sense. And finally and climactically in verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's the only reason any of this is at all possible. You can't make this journey on your own. You have to come to Jesus. And you've come to Jesus and you've come specifically to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood, Jesus' death, which covered your sins. Jesus' death. And the new covenant established out of that death that offers you forgiveness of sins has enabled it, enabled you, made it even possible for you to approach God the judge and not be condemned. And that's happened for you. These are all past tense. Technically, it's a perfect tense in Greek. And the only reason I tell you that is because there's a nuance here that I want you to know. The author of the Hebrews is emphasizing the reality that this is true for you right now. He's saying you have already arrived. You're there. You're not, you're right, you're there right now. That's the emphasis of what the, the writer to the Hebrews is saying here. You are there already. Now the rest of the book of Hebrews keeps the tension in place that we find everywhere in the New Testament that there's a, a sense in which you've already arrived. And yet there's the not yet reality that we're still on the journey to enter the Sabbath rest, as the author puts it in Hebrews 4. We're moving toward the climax and the culmination of our experience of the completion of our salvation. But everything is already done. And the author here is emphasizing these realities for us because these are things you must take by faith. You can't see these with your eyeballs. You can't see these truths. You don't feel them with your body. But they're true of you. You are assembled in heaven right now, gathered with the heavenly church. A third phrase that's used in the New Testament is that we have been baptized into one body. And this takes us into 1 Corinthians 12, where we'll spend most of our time this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit or by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Notice that the Apostle Paul here uses two liquid metaphors. One at the front end of the verse and one at the back end. At the back end, he speaks of drinking the Holy Spirit as though the Holy Spirit were a liquid that we then take into ourselves like we would drink a glass of water. 
That's the point. That's the image. But the first one is another liquid metaphor. He's not talking about water baptism, literally. He's talking about baptism as a metaphor, being plunged into something. He's saying very vividly and graphically that when you became a believer in Jesus, when you began to trust in Jesus, God, the Spirit, picked you up and plunged you into the body of Christ, the one universal or heavenly church. You were plunged in. That's a graphic metaphor for diving down, being immersed, plunged into this reality that's a body. It's trying to communicate, trying to depict for us the organic unity that we gain the moment we're connected to that body in heaven. We are so deeply connected to that body that it's as though we've been plunged underneath the water and may we never be pulled out again. That's the reality that we're looking at when we speak of joining the heavenly church. They use The New Testament writers use different metaphors and images to communicate that reality, but that's what happens to you the moment you trust in Jesus. You join the heavenly church. Well, now let's talk about the corollary reality, joining a local church. And when we start talking about this immediately, the question arises, and we're going to try to address the question at one level, is that biblical, joining a local church? Is that biblical? And sometimes when I get asked that question, I can perceive the tone of the question. Sometimes, not with everybody, but sometimes the question, the tone of the question is actually asking, do I have to? Do I really have to do that? Not for everybody, but sometimes I get that tone when I get that question. So let's see if we can see how the Bible talks about this reality. First, let's talk about the precursor to joining a local church. The precursor, counting conversions. Counting conversions. Acts 2.41 rather famously says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 Souls. Now, how do you count souls? The word that's used here doesn't actually refer to the non-material, non-physical part of ourselves, part of our identities, especially when counting is involved. It simply refers to us as whole people, our entire lives, not just spiritual life. Or it refers to us as people or persons, counted persons. Consider two other verses in Acts where it's used that way and it's translated differently. Consider Acts 7.14. And Joseph sent and summoned to Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Same word. Or Acts 27.37. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Same word. We'll see the importance of this word in a slightly different regard in just a little bit. But the people of God, what we need to see in this is the people of God are being assembled on earth and they are being accounted for. Secondly, let's talk about the reality, the reality, the family located in a particular place, the family located in a particular place. Acts 5.11 is the first time in the book of Acts that the word church appears and it refers to the church in Jerusalem. This is in the context of the Ananias and Sapphira episode. And Luke writes, And great fear came upon the whole church 
and upon all who heard of these things. The church is specifically the church in Jerusalem. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll read about the church in Jerusalem several times. You'll also read about the church in Antioch the church in Lystra, the church in Iconium, the church in Caesarea, and the church in Ephesus with its elders. Then most of the New Testament letters, of course, were addressed specifically to a particular church in a particular city or a group of churches in a particular province. So that's the reality, the family located in a particular place. Thirdly, let's talk about individuals as members belonging to the family. 1 Corinthians 12, again, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul introduces us to the anatomical metaphor. The anatomical metaphor. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So he's using a metaphor of the human body, and when he says members, he means body parts. Fingers, toes, head, shoulders, knees, and toes is a song that I will never get out of my head, I don't think. (laughs) Body parts, that's what he's talking about, and he's applying that to the church, the global, the universal, the heavenly church at first. We go down to verses 18 to 20 of 1 Corinthians 12, and we read this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So he's extending the anatomical metaphor here. And as he does that, the word arrange there in verse 18 doesn't refer to location or organization. Instead, it refers to function. Each body part functions differently, has a unique and specific purpose. God has designed to serve the body, and to serve the other members of the body. Now, when we go down to verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 12, he then applies this metaphor directly to the church in Corinth. And he begins to talk in local church terms, specifically. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you, church in Corinth, are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. We live out our bodiness in a particular family, in a particular local church. The church in Corinth might have needed two hands, and therefore God assigned two members who would be hands in Corinth. The church in Ephesus would also need two hands, and so God assigned two members who would be hands in Ephesus. It is God who determines what kind of member you are. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then after listing several ways the Spirit manifests Himself through different parts of the body, through different members of the church, what we often call spiritual gifts, in verse 11, he adds, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As Paul applies the anatomical metaphor to the church in Corinth, he then says in verses 14 to 18, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Now, this speaks to the benefits each member brings to the health and functionality of the whole body. But a couple verses later, Paul demonstrates the interdependence of the body parts. The fact that each member needs the others. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for each other. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In these verses, Paul draws our attention to the weaker parts of our body, the less honorable parts of our body, the unpresentable parts of our body. And he says that it's these parts that in the body God has blended together receive the greater honor I think this goes back to 1 Corinthians 1.26, where he had commented on the blend, the makeup of the church in Corinth. He wrote, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Out there in the world, you might be viewed as weak, devalued, discriminated against, disrespected. But inside the church... You are valued, elevated, honored. Outside the church, you might be considered non-essential personnel. But inside this body, you are absolutely indispensable. In other places, Paul puts it like this, Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The anatomical metaphor is a metaphor depicting organic unity. Now, it is true that we are organically connected to the heavenly assembly, the universal body of Christ. But the clear expectation of the New Testament is that you are going to live out your Christian life in organic unity with a particular assembly on earth in a particular place. The organic unity in the universal church is a given It's part of the package deal you receive when God saves you. The moment you begin trusting Jesus, you are united to Jesus and His body. How are you going to live out that truth? You, as an individual, are a member of the family of God, adopted as a son, the moment you begin trusting Jesus. But how are you going to live out your sonship How are you going to actually function as a member of the other parts of the body? 
the clear expectation of the New Testament is in the context of a local church where you commit yourself formally, covenantally even, to work the family business together, to share the family meal together regularly, to celebrate family birthday parties with this particular church family, to share your life and your resources with this particular or a particular church family. Now, I've used the phrase, the clear expectation of the New Testament twice. And some of you are flipping through your mental concordances. Some of you might even be sneaking a peek at your cell phones, searching Bible apps or asking Google. Because you can't remember a specific Bible verse that says, thou shalt join a local church. Is it possible that New Testament writers do, in fact, communicate that very idea in the imperative mood with the force of divine command without ever saying those exact words? To ask a related question, do you think the New Testament lays out a clear expectation that Christians must believe that God exists as Trinity, even though that word is never used? Pastor John Prince used that same comparison, and I think it is appropriate here. He added to that, if you put together the whole of the New Testament, it's there. It just bleeds all over the place that we are to be formally committed to each other. It's that formal commitment idea, I think, that is challenging for some of us. Right here, in the middle of the sermon, I want to call attention to the reality that there are folks who gather here regularly, who faithfully contribute to the ministry that goes on in this family, who function like members, but who've not made that formal commitment. I want to speak directly to those of you who could be described that way this morning. Would you consider again laying, would you consider again the biblical framework that I've been sketching out already here? Would you consider your own reasons for not taking that step? In the rest of the message, I'm going to seek to persuade you that you really are missing something both biblical and important. I hope some of you will be persuaded and will be compelled by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to join up. So what is church membership exactly? Can we define it simply and biblically? What is church membership? I've been reading a book published just a few months ago entitled Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential, with some chapters written by Colin Hansen and some written by Jonathan Lehman. Lehman offers a clear and, I think, biblical definition of church membership. Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. To put it simply in family terms, I am my brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. When you become a Christian, you join the heavenly assembly, as we've seen. On earth, you have freedom then to choose which earthly manifestation of that heavenly assembly you will commit to, connect with, or join. Church membership is less like gym membership and more like family membership. In a gym membership, you pay fees in order to make use of gym property 
and perhaps take advantage of Jim's services. Other than your money and your respectful use of Jim property, nothing else is expected of you. When you're a member of a family, however, your identity is wrapped up in that family. You don't pay to be a part of the family. In fact, in the case of adoption, the parents paid to bring you in. But once you're in, you're in. But your whole life is now to be shaped by that family. The other members of that household are now responsible for you, and you are accountable to them. Likewise, you are responsible for them, and they are accountable to you. Lehman says it this way, joining is your way of saying, this is the particular group of Christians I'm inviting into my life and asking to keep me accountable for following Jesus. I'm asking them to take responsibility for my Christian walk. If I'm discouraged, it's now their responsibility to encourage me. If I stray from the narrow path, it's their responsibility to correct me. If I'm in dire financial straits, it's their responsibility to look after me. Let's go back to the anatomical metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12. Every genuine local church should be seeking to embody the universal body of Christ. The organic unity that really is there in the heavenly assembly, in the universal church, should be reflected in each local church. When you join a local church, you are seeking to connect with that particular body organically, like an organ transplant. With a successful organ transplant, the organ functions in its new body and supports the health of that particular body. That's the kind of reality Paul was envisioning for the church in Corinth and every other local church. When someone attends services regularly, volunteers to serve, contributes financially to the church without formally committing to that particular body, And I hope you'll forgive the offensive metaphor. It's like, in some ways, artificially attaching an extra arm to a body as though it were glued and taped on the back. Out of place, not really functioning as it should. This is the same rationale for why you cannot be a member of more than one church at a time. I expect the members of my household, my immediate family members, to sleep in my house. I expect to see them every day, to spend time with them every day in my home, to share life with them every day. My wife and daughter might go spend the day at a friend's house or go on a trip someday, just the two of them, but they're not going to be staying at someone else's house every few days or even every few weeks. Likewise, when my church family gathers, I expect to spend time with my church family. I expect to see the faces of the members. Some of them may visit a church in another town once in a while to share an important experience with a friend or a family member, or some of them may head south to a warmer climate during the winter months. But I have full confidence that they will return home to be with our church family. And I even expect that while they're out of state, they'll remain connected with our family. In the same way that if my wife and daughter did take a trip, just the two of them, I expect we'd probably talk on the phone every day that, we were, that they were gone. But again, maybe for some it's the formal 
peace that you don't see as necessary or biblical. It is true that the early church probably didn't list names, addresses, phone numbers, and email addresses in a church directory. They probably didn't conduct membership classes. They probably didn't use Excel spreadsheets to track members and visitors. But each church knew who their members were. We've already seen that the early church counted converts, at least in the earliest days in Jerusalem. But beyond that, there is clearly a recognition of some who were in a particular church and others who were out. As Pastor John had said, it's everywhere present in the New Testament. But perhaps the clearest place we see this is in 1 Corinthians again. In chapter 14, Paul is addressing the way the church had misunderstood and been harmfully exercising spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues. Without getting into all the details, just observe the three groups of people reflected in Paul's concern in verse 23. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? The whole church is one group, the members of the church in Corinth. Unbelievers is a second group, and in between those two, a third group, outsiders, is mentioned. Now, is outsiders just another way of referring to unbelievers? It does not seem so. Rather, outsiders seem to be Christians who are members of other churches who come to visit the church in Corinth, or perhaps messengers sent to them like Timothy, whom Paul was about to send to the church in Corinth. Because this confusion about tongue speaking seems to be limited to the church in Corinth, when other believers might visit the church in Corinth, they would be confused and astounded at the bizarre behavior. And these outsiders will join with pagan unbelievers in their assessment that the members of this church have lost their minds. The processes we use today may be different, utilizing modern technology in particular, but the goal is the same, to know who comprises this church family. You know who's in my immediate family because we all share the last name, Langley. Of course, in today's world, that's not always an accurate indicator, but it is a traditional indicator at least. But if the principle is, I am my brother's keeper, it's important for me to know who my brothers and sisters are. Certainly, the Lord does not expect us to be responsible for all Christians everywhere. Quoting Lehman once more, church membership offers the safety of the sheep pen where Christ is shepherd. It offers the nourishment of being attached to a body like an arm to a torso where Christ is the head. It offers the love of a family where Christ is the firstborn of many heirs. It offers the obligations and duties of citizenship of a holy nation where Christ is the king. Membership in the church is membership in a family. It comes with family obligations. It's membership in a body. It comes with all the dynamics of being connected with every other part. Every biblical metaphor for the church helps us to understand what membership is. And all of them are necessary because there's nothing else in the world like the church. The final question I'd like to consider this morning is what are you missing? What are you missing when you don't join a local church? What difference does it really make? And I'm specifically thinking of those who are actually committed to a church, but for whatever reason, they've not formally committed. What are you missing? 
If you've been attending this church for a long time, participating in a care group perhaps, helping with church events occasionally, chances are we know you pretty well. Some of the elders probably know your story and are confident that you know Jesus. We seek to shepherd you. We've probably been involved in your life and the life of your family. We probably even know some of the reasons you've never formally joined this church family. And even though you haven't joined, we treat you like family. We consider you family. And of course, if you really know Jesus, you really are part of the family. If we as a church have something called membership, is it appropriate? Is it fitting for us as elders to consider you a member if you've never actually joined formally? There's something wrong with this arrangement biblically. There's an accountability or responsibility problem. And I ask, have you taken seriously the one another commands of Scripture and how they indicate a specific accountability? A specific accountability. Who are the others God is going to hold you accountable for obeying those commands with? Every one of the documents that make up the New Testament are addressed to churches. Obedience to the commands of the New Testament should be expressed first and foremost among a particular local church. When the author of Hebrews commands in Hebrews 12, 15, and 16, for example, now watch this. You're going to see three distinct commands here. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. There's the first one. Then, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Then here's the third one in verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. When the author commands the people in the church he's addressing, or let's say it like this, when God commands you to see to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no one becomes a poisonous root spreading defilement around, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, Who are you now responsible for looking after? Everyone on the planet? Every Christian on the planet? How about your brothers and sisters who gather together with you regularly, the other members of your local church family? Let me ask the question this way. Will the Lord hold you accountable on Judgment Day for how you protected every Christian on the planet in obedience to this passage? I think everyone sees the answer is no. Rather, he expects you to so commit yourself to a particular group of believers that you will obey this command for the members of that group's benefit. Also consider the flip side. Who has the right to reach into your life and confront you if they see you sinning? To whom are you accountable? Who do you expect to help you Carry your burdens, to borrow the language of Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Who has the right to seek to restore you if you should wander and become caught in any transgression? And can they count on you to do the same for them? These commands in Scripture make us responsible. We really are supposed to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. We really are supposed to look after each other. 
But this is not just some pie-in-the-sky ideal. This is supposed to be on the ground, nitty-gritty, in the trenches, warfare brotherhood, band of brothers tightness. I'm talking about spiritual protection here. Spiritual protection. As much as I don't like hypotheticals, I'm going to use a terrible one right here that believers who are not church members need to consider. What's going to happen to you if you fall into grievous immorality? I hope we're not too proud to admit the possibility that we could be deceived, that we could be led astray into terrible sin. The church in Corinth had members who committed grievous immorality. A member of their church apparently slept with his stepmother and there was no repentance. This was no one-night stand. And it wasn't a secret. The church knew about it. And somehow they seemed to have approved of it. That's not the kind of protection we're offering here. We will not cover your sin. No, we will obey the apostles' instructions to the church here. Paul commands the church as a whole to remove the man from their church. Specifically, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Notice that Paul does not exercise apostolic authority here. He doesn't say, I deliver this man over to Satan like he does with the false teachers and scripture-twisting troublemakers, Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20. Instead, the gathered church in Corinth must exercise their corporate authority to do this. This is not an authority granted to elders alone. But notice what's happening theologically when a church says to a member, you are removed from membership because of your sin. The church is putting that person outside into the realm of Satan. This is where we recognize the inside-outside distinction most sharply. Being inside the church provides a measure of protection from satanic hostility. That seems like an insane statement given that Revelation 12 teaches us that Satan rages against the church. But think of it like this. Isn't it safer to be inside the fortress when the enemy attacks than outside when the enemy is attempting to break down the gates? But more than this, by removing this man from their membership and putting him officially outside in Satan's realm, the church in Corinth was collectively saying... Based on this man's refusal to repent of his sin, he is still a citizen of Satan's realm. Or as Jesus says in Matthew eighteen seventeen, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The other side of church membership, opposite to the individual joining a local church, is the church family's affirmation of that individual's profession of faith. The commitment is a two-way street here. Jesus and Paul both recognize that the church's collective authority is exactly right here. But the church is not granted omniscience. We collectively can only look at fruit. We can only see evidence of a person's faith. But wherever we see that evidence, we can gladly affirm you in that. 
But when there's sin, and when, there, when that sin is not fought and not dealt with, when that sin is embraced and held on to, there can come a point when the church can no longer provide that affirmation. Notice that even such extreme measures have a redemptive purpose. Back to 1 Corinthians 5, the goal, the hope, is that after that protection is lifted, this man will come to his senses and repent so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's assumption is that separation from the church in Corinth, not having the church's affirmation of his faith as he continues in sin, will result in his suffering in Satan's realm. Satan is not kind to his subjects, to those in his realm. Paul expects that God may yet use even that satanic suffering to bring this man to genuine repentance and salvation. And in this particular case, we know that God did just that. Surely this is the same man spoken of in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 8, where we read, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Apparently the church in Corinth obeyed Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5 overzealously. The man experienced sorrow or godly grief, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, which is grief over sin that results in repentance. This man repented, but the church in Corinth was hesitant to welcome him back into the membership of their family. Paul insists they must reaffirm their love for him, forgive him, and comfort him. That is always the goal of church discipline, corrective church discipline. If you profess faith in Christ, but you are not a member of a church, what will happen to you if you become entangled in some sin? We don't want that to happen to any of you. Following Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 will help prevent it from happening, but for brothers and sisters to live together with such commitment that we care enough to have uncomfortable conversations, to risk stepping on toes, to risk being misunderstood... There needs to be a mutual commitment that should rise above the level of assumption. Indeed, covenantal commitment is appropriate. We don't rehearse it much, but Alfred Ullman Bible Church has a church covenant. If you've reviewed the Constitution recently, it should be fresh in your mind. When you join this church, you make promises, reflecting a host of biblical obligations between brothers and sisters. You enter into a covenant relationship with the other members of this church. You promise to endeavor to please God in every way, pursuing a manner of life consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You promise to walk together with the other members in Christian love. You promise to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry of this church. You promise to maintain family and personal devotions and to educate our children in spiritual things, to actively pray for and witness to our unsaved relatives and acquaintances, to be just faithful and exemplary in all our dealings. You promise to neither judge a brother in matters of personal conviction nor cause a fellow Christian to stumble. And in line with what we've just been looking at from Jesus and Paul, you promise to watch over one another in brotherly love, to remember each other in prayer, to aid each other in sickness and distress. You promise to be slow to take offense 
always ready for reconciliation and eager to secure it without delay. Finally, if you choose to leave this church family for whatever reason, you promise to, as soon as possible, unite with some other church. In a day when commitment between people is sorely lacking, how wonderfully reflective of God's peculiar ways that He would call us to commit to each other deeply, truly, and yes, formally. God has committed, committed Himself to His people eternally. He purchased a bride for His Son through the death of His Son. And Jesus loved His bride enough to die for her. Can our long-term formal commitment to each other point to God's forever-term covenantal commitment to us? I think it can. One other piece remains to talk about, the responsibility of church leadership. The responsibility of church leadership. The New Testament writers establish church leadership in such a way that requires formal church membership. If you are allergic to authority, you might struggle with Hebrews 13, 17. God delegates a certain kind of authority within local churches. The exercise of that authority by elders, overseers, pastors, whatever you want to call us, is a challenge, a burden, and a responsibility. But it is supposed to be a joy. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The New American Standard Bible just completed an update in 2020, and its rendering of this particular verse brings a couple of things out much more clearly. So look at this on the screen. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. The dual command to obey and submit is unique in the New Testament, both as two words paired together and also the particular words that are used here. Without going into a full explanation, simply put, the author commands church members to yield to the instruction and direction of your leaders. And the implication for leaders is that we seek to persuade those we're leading rather than asserting authority and domineering over those we're leading. For our purposes right now, just notice that he says, your leaders. We don't know for sure which local church this sermon or letter we call Hebrews was addressed to, but the author was not commanding them to obey and submit to the leaders of the church in Colossae, or the church in Corinth, or the church in Ephesus. He was commanding them to obey and submit to the leaders of the church of which they were members, the the church they had committed themselves to. The second thing to hone in on is the reason given. The author motivates his audience to obey and submit to their leaders because those leaders are looking out for them. There's that word souls that we saw in Acts. Some have wrongly concluded that this means that church leaders only have responsibility for the quote-unquote spiritual lives of the members of their church, as if the Bible separated spiritual from physical in such a sharp manner. The elders of Alfred Allman Bible Church are seeking to care for the whole lives of our members because according to this verse, we're going to give an account. 
to God for how we've cared for you. This issue of accounting does seem to imply that we should be able to know who we are responsible for caring for. So, if you haven't formally committed to this church, do you believe that we are going to be held accountable for your life, for caring for you? And if we're not, who will? Who will stand before God and account for your life? Who is responsible for looking after you in this way? None of this is to say that we don't love you or that we won't serve you with whatever resources we have. Likewise, the elders love the Christians gathering down the street, other churches in this community. Pastor John spoke of how much energy he was going to invest. I like that way of thinking about it. He, he recognized that we only have so much energy to invest how much energy we could put into different Christians. As elders, we're going to invest our energies, our resources, into the members of this church first first and foremost. Finally, as the New American Standard Bible 2020 has made clear, rather than a separate command, there is a purpose clause given, which is another motivator for you to obey and submit to your church leaders. The manner of your obedience and submission should bring the elders joy as they seek to watch out for you. When your interactions with the elders bring us joy, the author implies that it's better for you. When you take a posture of humility and teachability with a willingness and even an eagerness to learn and to receive counsel from your leaders, and we are able to reach into your life joyfully, you're not merely making our job easier. You're making your growth more likely. The opposite that the author highlights is to be a cause of groaning for your leaders. If your posture toward the elders is constant resistance, refusal to engage, or outright disrespect, we groan even as we try to help. Paul once commanded the members of the church in Philippi to complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The elders of Alfred Allman Bible Church could say here, Complete our joy by formally committing to this church family. I realize that authority in the church can be abused or mishandled. Many of us are expecting leaders to fail. The media certainly makes much of it when it happens. And it's a leader's burden to build trust in those he leads. Church elders are to follow the model of the Apostle Paul. You can go read about it later in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 35. There you will find the primary criteria to use to judge whether elders are faithful or not. We are accountable to the church as well, after all. The bottom line summary statement that encapsulates all of it is found in verse 27, Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Judge us by that standard, not some other. Hold us accountable to that standard on whether or not we are worthy of your trust. As we conclude this morning, the application is quite straightforward. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've chosen to gather with this church family regularly, seriously consider joining, formally committing to this church family. We have a process laid out in our constitution for how we do this practically. I've tried to be direct this morning because I love you. And I want to be involved in your life. And I want you to be involved in mine. 
And I love those of you that I know are not members. But you're here among us, and I am grateful, week after week, showing up and participating. I don't want you to feel guilty. But if you're still not convinced, I would love to have a conversation. I'd love to sit down and listen to your reasoning, and I'd love to know your story. For some of you, it might not be that you disagree with the biblical framework. It might be because of past bad experiences. Church hurt is real. I've experienced it, and I've caused it. I have a book here entitled, The Bridezilla of Christ. What to do when God's people hurt God's people. I read this book a week before I moved here from Texas because I needed healing. Even as the Lord was leading my family into a new church family, transplanting us to serve here and to live here with all of you. The book helped some. I'll just read the last paragraph on the back side of the book as a kind of endorsement. The Bridezilla of Christ is a verbal IV, dripping with the mercy found only in Christ. Though you've been wronged, or perhaps you've wronged another, there is cause for great hope. The hurt is not the deepest thing. Grace is deeper still. You can borrow it if you need it. To members of Alfred Allman Bible Church and to all believers listening to my voice, I say, commit. Go all in. Jesus died for His bride, the church. You can't love Jesus and not love the church. Open yourself up. Take a risk. Take the plunge. Dive in deep. Jesus is building His church in heaven by drawing together believers in local churches all over the earth. Get involved in that great work. Be here, be real, and receive all the grace you could ever need. This isn't a perfect church, but don't go looking for a perfect church. The author of Hebrews says we are being perfected, but we're not there yet. As the saying goes, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, because you will surely mess it up. But wherever you go, whatever you do, Commit to a family of believers where you can be equipped by the leadership to do the work of ministry and lay down your life for those brothers and sisters. For those brothers and sisters. If not here, then where? If not now, then when? I'm committed to this, lo- this church for the long haul. The Lord has the freedom to move me and change me, but I can promise you that for my part, I long to serve this family with all that I am and all that I have until I have nothing left or until the Lord picks me up and takes me away. Next Sunday, we will have updated membership applications prepared. If you are interested in joining this church, talk to one of the elders and we'll get you started in the process. Would you pray with me as we close our time together? Father, thank you for these people. I have prayed for them by name. I know their faces. And Lord, we we long to be a church that reflects the glory and the unity of the body, the heavenly body. And so we pray that you would join us together in such a way that we do that. 
that we paint a picture of the gospel for the world around us to see, that we paint a picture of the gospel that puts to shame the heavenly rulers and authorities who would oppose us and persecute us. Father, you are making known the multifaceted wisdom of your purposes and plan through the church. It seems so foolish to us, but that's where your wisdom is perfect and we trust you for it. Father, would you help us individually to commit ourselves to each other? We want to love each other deeply, truly, lastingly. And so we pray that you would give us opportunities to live with each other, to share life in its fullness, not just in this building, not just in this place, but throughout the week and throughout our lives. Help us to be vulnerable and willing to welcome people in, even if it hurts, even if it's uncomfortable. So thank you, Father, for the church that you're building, the church that you're putting together and assembling in heaven and all over the world. Help us to be involved in that great work with everything that we have and everything that we are. And we will give you praise for the good things you bring through our labors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.